This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There have been some major developments in the Hockey Canada sexual assault scandal over the weekend. Michelle McQuig has the latest. Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, this one has been bubbling to the surface for about 10 days now. Mm -hmm. But over the weekend, formal charges were filed. What's the latest? That's correct, but it's not done bubbling. I should just say that this is really just the start of the action to come in the next week or so. So what we learned yesterday, we've been hearing word forever that there are charges pending in the the, 20, the alleged 2018 incident that touched off all the Hockey Canada scandals last year. I, we don't have time to recap them all, but the change of leadership at Hockey Canada, the appearances before the committees, the, the rev- revocation of funding, all these things had their their origin somewhere in the allegations around the world junior, the junior, sorry, the, yeah, the juniors team from 2018, who members of whom allegedly perpetrated a sexual assault in 2018. What we now know is that there have been charges filed against five people. And one of those people is a player by the name of Alex Formanton. He used to be with the Ottawa Senators, and he turned himself into London police yesterday. Do we know what the charges are? No, we don't. All we know is that there are charges filed and that one player has surrendered and the others are expected to do so in the coming days. But that is pretty much all we know in terms of those developments. Mm. That said, even though it sounds vague, it actually does move the ball forward a lot relative to where we were even just a couple of days ago. Michelle, there's a lot of reckless speculation going on around this story. You nor I will engage in that. But what are the London police... We sure won't. We sure won't. But what are the London police saying about where the process goes from here? All they are saying is that they're withholding comment on any of the allegations or the charges until they're planning to hold a news conference on February 5th. Now, you have to understand that it's really, really strange to set up a news conference 10 days out. (laughs) So they clearly have a whole plan that they're sticking to it, but that we're going to have to wait for any official word from them until next Monday. So pretty much I, I would say... I would speculate this time next week or maybe slightly later, we'll probably finally get some answers. Mm. But they're not, they're, they're really, really staying quiet until yeah. then. This is an example of where uh, journalism uh, beats out everything else. So let's leave it there and let journalists continue to do their work. Michelle, let's switch to something different here. There's been a development on the Housing for International Students front, (laughs) pretty much as the news panel wrapped up our conversation on this issue on Friday. By the The way, the timing was comical, truly. By by the way, download that episode, search for Now with Dave Brown on your favorite podcast, an announcement uh, that is not in line with something that I was bantying about. Michelle, what is the government asking colleges to do? It's almost like they hired you, Dave, because the government came out and said that what they're planning to do now is mandate that all universities have to provide housing for their international students, which, for those who were listening on Friday, is exactly what Dave said they should do. The catch. <laughs> Dave, Dave Brown Consulting still waiting for the check, by the way. I mean, fair. Uh, I, I would also like to note, though, that... Uh, Perpetual ants at the picnic, Michelle McQuig, did point out that these things are hard to do without money. And lo and behold, that thread came out too on Friday. 
this mandate does not come with funding package. There's no money associated with this announcement. And as a result, it's being pretty widely panned by, by the universities themselves and by opposition groups just saying, oh, that's great. We would love to provide more housing. How are we going to pay for that? We need some money and we need some help. You might remember in Ontario that tuitions here have been frozen since 2019, and the province has not boosted funding since then. So that is the big source of the university's uh, pushback on this, is they're saying that they simply don't have enough money and haven't for quite some time. Michelle, I know that there are a lot of uh, contradictory narratives being put out here, but I don't know if the ants at the picnic can scurry a bit deeper for me in regards to the <laughs> scope and scale of this policy. How much burden precisely would it put on institutions? Great question. Um, is, is there a specific angle you're? you're I'm, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. At? I'm just thinking about uh, like how much how much money it's going to cost, where they're going to get space, like construction yeah, timelines. Well, like those are all the big questions, right? Because there is because there's no funding package associated. I don't. We'd be taking individual universities' words for it, not estimates in terms of space. That's always a perennial issue. Like there, there really is nothing in this particular announcement to to sort of pave the way for this to become a concrete policy rather than an abstract one. Um, and well, that's of a course, good pun. That's the, a good pun, by the way. Concrete policy versus abstract. Oh, my, oh, oh. oh this is my superpower, accidental puns. <laughs> my best ones are not suitable for the air, but still. Um, <laughs> the, the Yeah, the, essentially at this point, the, the onus is entirely on the universities to make this happen and and the immediate message is no, we're not able to do that. Yeah, there's also timeline questions here that come to mind for me, right? Very much so. Like regardless yep. of space or money or strategy, the fact is you can't wave a magic housing wand. Like, like I wish we could. No. We would be in a much different housing scenario right now if there was such a thing as a magic housing wand, but there isn't. It takes time. Like it, it, can, it can, I mean, listen, it doesn't take a decade to build housing, but certainly it can take a year or two to build anything sure. that's resembling quality. Absolutely. And that's the whole issue, right? It, the quality is is a big piece of it. We're in this this whole conversation about international student education because a lot of the accommodations that have been made so far in terms of private, you know, partnerships with, with private schools and whatnot, and many of the things that have been done have resulted in a lack of quality, lack of quality education, terrible housing scenarios. You hear about students sharing mattresses and terrible rooms, et cetera. It, so some some degree of quality matters. It can't just be housing full stop. There, there needs to be some parameters and criteria in place. And all, all we have with this particular announcement on Friday is a mandate that the universities mm. should provide it. So, And we don't even know when that would go into effect. Right, so at this right. point, it's a pretty loose promise. Even if it's a, uh, in theory, good idea, because it came from Dave Brown Consulting. Uh, okay, Obviously. let's switch to another Ontario story. This one did not come out of the mind of Dave Brown Consulting. A little bit odd, but Dave Brown Consulting kind of approves. The government is going to be moving some Service Ontario locations into retail locations, namely yeah. Staples. I didn't know Staples was still really a thing. Uh, there, was some reporting know, right? <laughs> there was some reporting on this by your colleagues. Well, what's the intention yeah. here? Allison Jones and Liam Casey, my my dear, dear friends and colleagues are working at the at Queen's Park. They're a formidable team and you should follow them if you want to keep up with Ontario politics. This uh, particular announcement is, is interesting. Yes, they're, they're announcing that they're going to be moving a few Service Ontario locations into Staples stores. And this is part of a broader effort to try to they're trying several different ways of expanding Service Ontario. So one thing I didn't actually really know formally until recently 
is that the government does operate a certain number of service Ontario locations, I think about 80, and the rest of them are operated through private partnerships. And these are the partnerships they're now trying to explore and possibly expand. So this is where Staples comes in. They're moving those locations in there and they are looking at other big box stores. And the reasons they're doing this is they're saying it's partially for customer convenience. They're saying the government run locations are only going to be open Monday to Friday during business hours, but Staples stores are open on Saturdays and much much longer. They're often more centrally located. That's the kind of model they want to pursue with some of the other retail outlets. They haven't said which ones they're looking at, but they're also just throwing a number of other um, models at the wall to try mm -hmm. and see how else they can expand. And this is where it gets quite interesting because there really clearly is an effort to try and change the customer experience a bit, make the locations more accessible, go deeper into remote communities. So there really does seem to be a good faith effort here to, to expand the reach of Service Ontario and make it more accessible to more people. And this is where some of the other pilot projects are coming in and they already are moving on this. So I, I, I do think the government's pretty serious about this one. I remember I used to go to the Service Ontario location inside Ottawa City Hall, and it was so darn convenient because that's where a lot of official business was going mm -hmm. on. Michelle, as I draw a thread here or a line that makes this not just an Ontario story, but connects it in different ways that cities and provinces are envisioning access to services or, mm -hmm. or reimagining the public space that we live in. This is obviously not a housing story like the Calgary uh, commercial space into apartment story, but I see mm, the connection. Yes. It's reutilization of existing public spaces where people are. And I think that yes. that is something that really matters in the broader conversation of a reimagining in the way that we operate in this world. Certainly the more stuff that could be moved online, that's fantastic as well. But especially when it comes to government documentation, you just need to think about where people are and where they can get to them. And what do we have that already exists in our society mm -hmm. that should make it a more straightforward line? Not just where people are, but how do people function in their honest to God day-to-day -day lives. And this is where one of the comments from the minister in the story from Allison and Liam is, is a good one in that they're saying people don't do their business by going to some cathedral-like government building between 8.30 and 4.30. They do stuff when they can. They do stuff on Saturdays. This is what we have to acknowledge is that the world is different now and business gets done differently and we need to be there if we want to be part of this mix. So that is also the the, the not so tacit acknowledgement is that they need to be there where people are and where pe and and how they're living their lives and this is part of the whole model. So they're looking at a few other things. Uh, there, there's a, a mobile service Ontario model that they're exploring in our more remote area that seems to sort of hew to this philosophy. They're looking at potentially libraries uh, again with yeah, libraries coming yeah. back here are our favorite uh, stopping point for these things. Um, other retail locations that well, we don't know which ones yet, but the, again. The aim seems to be big box stores yep, because they're open yep. longer. Mm -hmm. So they're 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 trying. Some of these projects are already off the ground, and others um, only only the library one I think hasn't had some form of action taken on it already. So 
we've got four or five different models currently in play, trying to see what's the best one. Pretty good yeah. way to gather information on what works and what doesn't. And as I continue to draw lines here, I think about the way in which services uh, are moving towards pharmacies in Ontario, yeah. Alberta, and Nova Scotia. That was the daily Absolutely. poll question last week and got a lot of response on that one. And I'll tell you, as getting a vaccination right before Christmas, it was very convenient to go to a pharmacy where I was able to get a vaccination, do a Canada Post return, <laughs> and buy some groceries for the rest of the uh, week, right? Like when you can... Exactly, and, and, yeah. And, and the there also is an accessibility argument. And the argument. Canada Post partnership is another piece too, right? Yeah. So there's another one that's been enlisted for... And, and, Public there, services. and there's an accessibility argument around this as well. As someone who is legally Very blind, so. I don't want to go to four different places to do something. If you can put this under one roof for me, that's a huge advantage. Even if and there's questions, stuff- even if even if there's questions of execution, like there, there is merit. Absolutely. And the other advantage to standalone stores to put them in is for accessibility reasons. Malls are often not great. If you bury them somewhere in there, that's not going to work for a lot of people. So many potential advantages to this kind of approach. And and it's interesting to see that they're really trying to just suss out the best options. Uh, This government also has done a lot, it's worth acknowledging, to bring services online. A lot of the things we can now do in the province, like renewing our health cards and driver's licenses and the driver's license equivalents for those of us who can't hold driver's license. The Ontario ID card, which... Uh, Photo card. Yeah, yeah, I had to live here for a while before I knew about that one. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's a thing. Yeah, well, but we could not renew those things online up until about two, three years ago. But now we can. And the government has been devoting some genuine resources to try and simplifying a lot of those processes and bringing them online. So I, I do think there is a certain level of commitment to, to broader accessibility for perhaps not in the way that we all discuss it here, but in in expanding the reach of Service Ontario and making it easier for people to do those crucial things. Michelle, I took you a little over time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Have a great week. Thank you very much. That's Michelle McQuig, Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press and part of the Friday News Panel. Check that out just after 9 o'clock Eastern Time on Friday. Coming up next, advocacy comes in many forms, but it works best when there's power in numbers. Shelley Petit reflects on the importance of evoking change through community advocacy. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.